Dear Lord, we come before you in your word asking, Father, that you would prepare our hearts. Show us your majesty and your power and your wisdom. Convict us, Father, on the matters before us on this page. Though each of us, Father, will, we may not be at the stage of rebellion that this writer is concerned with in the case of his readers. It is probably the case, Father, that we know of some who are, or perhaps we've been there in the past, and if so, then we need to be concerned about the potential to be there again. And I thank you, Lord, that you could remind us through this word this morning and encourage us at the same time of the seriousness of these things in our life, of how our life of obedience matters to you, and therefore it matters to us. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder. Father, it's uh, also sobering, but I ask that you'd encourage us along with giving us this reminder that you'd show us, Father, that the day is still the day and that there is still much work to be done and that you are long-suffering and patient and that you are kind and that your kindness, Father, will lead us to repentance. I ask, Lord, that in those things we need repentance for, you would grant us the courage to do so and in Our strength of walk, if we may be in a good place today, Father, I pray that you would protect us and hold us there. In keeping with what we learned this morning, in your holy and precious word, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned the word patience in my prayer, and the word patience is such an interesting word. It sounds good to our ears, doesn't it? To know that someone would show us patience. It describes, in fact, an act of kindness. It's an act of letting an offense... Go by unnoticed. And we love that. Giving grace by showing consideration to someone who deserves something less. But the reason I think that word is interesting, at least to me, is because it also implies a limit, doesn't it? When we say someone is patient, it implies that they may not respond in the same way forever. That at some point they may respond differently to our offense It suggests that sooner or later, patience runs out. The very nature of the word communicates that, right? So the word is interesting to me because though it sounds good now, it carries this potential for unpleasant things in the future, should our behavior not change. The Bible says the Lord is patient and long-suffering in withholding his judgment against sin. And he is patient not only toward the unbeliever, but also toward the believer, to the saint, according to Scripture. But sooner or later, in both cases, his patience runs out. For the unbeliever, we know that expires at the day of their death, their physical death. Everyone is appointed to die once and then comes judgment. So for the unbeliever, death is the ultimate moment in which patience runs out. But for the believer, for the saint, the Scriptures tell us that the Lord is patient in withholding his judgment against us for our disobedience to his word. Now, clearly, the consequences for our rebellion are very different than the consequences for the unbeliever who lives in rebellion to the gospel itself. But nevertheless, there are consequences for disobedience, both for the unbeliever and for the saint. And when the Lord's patience runs thin, we should expect to experience the discipline of the Lord in this life as we walk this earth, but even more sobering, is the reality that we face the prospect of a diminished eternal reward at our judgment if our life is one of significant rebellion. That's what the Apostle John warns about in his second letter when he says in 2 John 8, 
Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you might receive a full reward. Not only may we forego reward for failure to obey, but we may actually lose something we had gained at an earlier point for failure to sustain that obedience, to sustain to the end. As Paul says, to run the race to the end and not just for a time. So while we rejoice in the grace that we've all received from our patient heavenly father through his grace, let's not overlook that patience has a limit. And that's where we find the writer's thinking today as he approaches the fourth warning in the letter of Hebrews, where he addresses the consequences for his readers returning to a life of false worship under the old covenant. That was the specific circumstances of their day. In chapter 10, 19 through 25, which we just covered last week, the writer, as you remember, issued three exhortations, which I called the let us exhortations, because they all began with this phrase, let us, and then to some specific command. And the three commands that he directed to the believer were, first, stand firm in the newfound faith that you have in the blood of Christ. Secondly, continue in that confession of hope, your hope in the resurrection of Christ. And then third, continue gathering with the New Testament church. Don't forsake that gathering. Don't forsake the participation in order to go to some other false religious observance. But now the question becomes, what is to happen to the believer who does not heed those exhortations? What are the consequences, for example, of spurning the Lord who died to save you? How do you think he responds to the believer once his patience runs out? That's the question now on the page for us. It's sobering. I'll preface everything we're going to learn today by saying, yeah, there's there's not a lot of giggles and fun and a lesson like this. And I get that. You know, as a pastor, you could take an approach to a text like this, which is let's lighten it up. Let's add some humor here and there. And I could do that. Right. I could soften it. On the other end, I could also overstate it and perhaps beat you over the head with it. I'm going to try hard not to do either one. I want the substance of it to come through. I want the message of it to be heard because that's why it's written. But by the same token, my intent is not to leave us so discouraged at the end of the day that we have no reason to perform at all for Christ. Far from it. Our hope is that what we learn today will encourage us to be all the more obedient so that he would be all the more pleased. Let's see what the writer says. Here are the the things we might expect from a patient, long-suffering, but also just and demanding master to the servant who fails him. Verse 26, the writer says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He begins by naming a certain group of Christians here. Those who specifically go on sinning willfully. 
Now, that takes some time for us to understand, because since everything that follows is directed at that group, aren't we all most interested in knowing, well, what is he talking about specifically? What group are we talking about? Because I don't want to be in that group. Or you shouldn't want to be, right? What does it mean to go on willfully sinning? Well, first, notice it's expressed as a continuing action, one that has a beginning but never has an end. The writer's referring to a Christian who runs after something sinful but never comes back. They never recover from this. Secondly, in this context, and by, by context I mean in the context of Hebrews 7 through 10, in this context... We know that the sin that he's concerned about in the case of his readers must be the sin of abandoning the new covenant so that they can return to a life under the old covenant and its worship practices in the Jewish temple. These, remember, are Jewish Christians who, because of their immaturity in the knowledge of Christ and of Christian doctrine, they've wavered in their confidence. They're not grounded in the word of God. And so at some point... They have chosen to return to seeking God in a comfortable setting, in a familiar setting of the Jewish sacrificial system. The thing they grew up with, the thing their friends do, the thing they're being pressured by other Jews to go back to. This is home for them, and they're trying to retreat there. What made this sin willful? Because they knew the truth, having been taught by the apostles about the new covenant, Because they knew at some point that Christ was the only sacrifice they needed. The writer told us that back in chapter 5. They knew the truth. And yet, because they did not pursue spiritual maturity, what did the writer say is the consequence back in chapter 5? He says, you cannot discern good from evil if you have not pursued spiritual maturity, if you're still babes. And because of that, they committed apostasy. They became apostate. Though they remain a child of God by grace... They have fallen away from their walk as a Christian and from the discipline of obedience to the new covenant. So they are sinning by retreating from what they believe into something they know to be false. And it is willful because it's not something that they've been tricked to do. It's not an accident. They have all that they needed to know and they have chosen the wrong path. So this warning applies to that group of people most certainly. But I would argue, and I think anyone who reads the text fairly would argue, that this warning applies equally to other situations like we might find today where Christians sin willfully in a significant way. Anytime a believer chooses to live in ways that are contrary to their profession of faith, they are also at risk, I would argue, of what's following in this warning. For example, if a Christian abandons their walk for worldly pursuits, then they are sinning willfully. They have moved away from where they should be to living a life that is a lie. If you stop assembling with other Christians, stop studying the Bible, stop praying, stop living for Christ, well, such a person is testing the patience of the Lord. If a Christian adopts a lifestyle or a pattern of behavior that is contrary to doctrine and good teaching and their good witness, for example, a homosexual lifestyle or a lifestyle of fornication, heterosexual fornication, If that's their regular routine of who they are, that is willful sinning against what they've been taught. Or a Christian who is routinely dishonest in their business dealings, or routinely violent or ungodly in some other way, or a Christian who lives in slavery to addictions or to lust. These are willful ways to consciously move away from what we know to be true and proper and expected, and they all risk exhausting the patience of the Lord sooner or later. Never mind the fact that the normal principle of sin is that there are consequences all along the way. But we're not talking just about the natural consequences of sin. We're talking about God supernaturally imposing upon us 
his discipline now and his judgment later. Things that the writer says we should be seriously concerned about. So what do we think will become of a slave who lives in disobedience to his master? Well, the writer says for such a person, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, he's referring to the sacrifices that were performed under the old covenant. He does this, though, so that he can draw from a principle that is found in the law and use that principle today under the new covenant. And the principle in the law was that there were certain offenses like murder, like adultery, like blasphemy, and there were others in which the law made no provision for sacrifice. In other words, the law of Moses made no provision for the person who intentionally committed one of those sinful acts. If you were a murderer under the law of Moses and you were found to be a murderer, you couldn't show up at the temple with a certain number of animals and absolve yourself of that sin. There was no such sacrifice made possible. The only remedy under the law for those offenses was to take the life of that individual, the death penalty. That was it. So when he says in verse 28, setting aside the law of Moses had a great penalty. That phrase, setting aside the law of Moses, that's referring to the person who would consciously ignore the instructions of the law and the penalties that they know are a part of the law and nevertheless go out and commit one of those heinous sins. To commit adultery knowing that the only penalty that is possible is that you be put to death. But so what? I'm going to do it anyway. That's like setting aside the law. That's saying in your heart, I'm not bound by that law and I don't really care what the penalty is. Under the law, if a Jew were to cross one of those lines, one of those no sacrifice allowed lines, they knew their penalty was severe. They weren't ignorant. So in verse 27, the writer says, anyone who traded obedience under the old covenant for a life of willful disobedience faced a terrifying outcome. He mentions here a fire that consumes God's adversaries. That's actually a reference to number 16 when a group of Jewish men were consumed by fire coming down from heaven sent by God because they had crossed one of those lines. Therefore, the writer says in verse 29, all right, we know that the new covenant is greater than the old. But knowing that, if he was willing to put people to death for crossing certain lines, for setting aside his expectations. What do you think he's willing to do for us under a greater covenant if we make that same mistake? If we set it aside, so to speak, ignore its expectations, live as if it doesn't matter to us, as if we're not bound to it, though we obviously are. There are some choices and decisions in our life that can lead to something Paul calls shipwrecked faith. It's faith because it was given to you by God. It's not dependent on your mental condition. But nonetheless, in how you behave, you have become like a ship sent out to sea and then run aground. Walking away from a faith community or bankrupting your personal testimony in any number of ways is a crisis in your relationship with the Lord. The writer says, it is like trampling Christ under your feet. Now in the East, both in that day and still today, in fact, in the East, the sole of your foot is an offensive and degrading symbol to them in their culture. Do you remember when Bush traveled to Iraq sometime during his presidency and someone threw a shoe at him? There were probably more effective weapons you could have chosen. If your intent was to hurt the man, right? That wasn't the intent. The intent was to degrade him. Do you remember after the city of Baghdad fell and people were free to express their opinions however they wanted, there were people in the streets with pictures of Saddam Hussein and they would put the picture on the ground and they were standing on his face with their feet. 
trampling something in the Eastern mindset means to treat them with utter contempt. There's no greater way you can show contempt to someone than that. From God's point of view, the Christian who forsakes their walk with him in any of the ways we've mentioned is trampling God in that respect, trampling Christ, showing utter contempt for the Lord who saved them. Secondly, he says, when we follow other gods, we regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. To worship in any other context besides the new covenant church would mean to believe that the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ, is common. That's what it means to be unclean, common, without power, without significance. Because if we're seeking the power of God in some other system, in some other place, then it stands to reason we're saying what I found in the new covenant wasn't sufficient, wasn't good enough, wasn't powerful. There are Christians who join pagan rituals, new age practices, other cults of one form or another, often dressed up in very appealing ways, things that sound good, that sound like they're good for our bodies and our minds and our spirit, but in reality are cleverly veiled attempts by the enemy to convince us that the blood of Christ is not sufficient. We need something else from another source, though it won't be named as such because that would be too offensive, but it will get us there one way or the other. And when you do that, you are taking the immense risk that a God who describes himself as jealous should eventually choose to act against you, that his patience will run out in jealousy for your attention, for your worship. And then lastly, he says, we are insulting the spirit of grace. The spirit of God, friends, continues to live inside of us even when we run into false worship or engage in some lifestyle of persistent sin. He doesn't jump off board. We know that from Scripture. Therefore, when we move into these directions of sin, we're dragging the Holy Spirit with us into that. He's not participating. He's not guilty of sin himself, but he's present there in those moments. And that's how you insult him. You insult him by taking the enlightenment and the empowerment that he has granted to us and throwing it away, as it were, making it of no value to yourself. Now, writer says when you act in these three ways, there is no get-out-of-jail-free card in your relationship with Christ. There is no act that we can perform, like a sacrifice, that resets the past, that makes up for our disobedience. Now, let's be clear. Our sins are forgiven on the cross. I am not suggesting here that somehow our sins come back to weigh upon us in some sense. That's not the issue that's in view here on the page. We will never experience the penalty that our sin demands, which is the second death in the lake of fire. That has been settled on the cross. But friends, there is still a judgment for the believer, though not that one. And we heard in the reading this morning what that judgment entails. By comparison, the writer says, if the Jews under the old covenant, a lesser covenant, faced this severe penalty for failure to obey the truth, then there must be some severe penalty for the new covenant believer when we do the same thing. Remember back in verse 25 from last week, the writer mentioned this day that is drawing near. You remember that? We looked at that last week and we understood that that reference of a day that is drawing near is a reference to the judgment day in which we stand before the Christ and give an account and we hear his judgment. It's that day that he's alluding to when he talks here about what kind of judgment do you think you'll have if you go on willfully sinning? It's this judgment seat of Christ that he's asking us all to consider when we ask ourselves, well, what really is going to happen? I mean, I've made it this far. I've made it through my life not doing the right things this long. Haven't been caught so far. Okay, maybe you will be deceived into thinking that that's a good 
outcome for you and you just keep going all the way to the end of your life because for whatever reason, God never sees fit to bring you earthly consequences to stop your behavior. But friends, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, all of that pretense is gone. You won't be able to tell yourself it was a good deal. You won't be happy that you lived through your life without a consequence. The judgment seat is where the Lord assesses our life of service. And the outcome of that test is like metal passing through a refiner's fire, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Those with a good testimony receive a reward. Those who test God's patience will see a consuming fire. Consuming their works, in other words, consuming their reward. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter about this same moment. 1 Peter 4, 15, he says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. I love the fact that that one's in the same list as murderer. (laughs) Or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, if you suffer for doing what's right, well, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For... It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The Bible says judgment starts with us. Why? Because before the unbelieving world receives their judgment, we will have received ours at the resurrection of the church. And he says we should be concerned with that moment. Now, it might be a bit of doubt as to whether or not the writer is truly addressing believers here. There's certainly some debate in the church about this, or has been historically. Is this not perhaps a discussion about what happens to the false confessor, someone who's played around with being Christian but has never actually been a Christian, and now that they've moved away from it, they're in real trouble? Well, first, we see the context of these chapters. The ones I've been speaking on now from chapter 6, 5, 6 onward. These chapters have been firmly focused on believers throughout. There's never been any moment in this discussion when we veered off of that topic and gone to a topic of unbelief. Throughout chapter 10, specifically, the writer has been speaking in terms of plural first person. We, we. In fact, if you just scan down your Bible, you'll see the word we consistently throughout the chapter, which means he's placing himself within this group. He's identifying with this group, which would indicate he believes them to be Christian. Secondly, at a point earlier in this text, in chapter 10, he talked about them having a confession of faith that they needed to hold on to. Well, that confession would indicate they're Christian. Thirdly, he asked them not to forsake the assembling together, which would indicate they're part of a congregation. You wouldn't say that to an unbeliever. You wouldn't tell an unbeliever that they need to hold to the congregation. In fact, Paul says the opposite, right? What does light and darkness have in common? We would not expect unbelievers to bind themselves To the church or vice versa. And the three offenses that he says we commit when we run away from our Lord, when we are disobedient, these are only possible by believers. Trampling Christ is only possible if you have a relationship with him first. For example, if an American soldier, just to use an analogy, if an American soldier were to become a traitor during wartime, we would say that he had trampled underfoot the American flag or or something of that sort, right? He had brought shame to America, in other words, because he had this special relationship with his nation, which he forsook to go off and become a traitor. Likewise, only a Christian can bring shame to Christ because of the relationship we have with him. You can't bring shame to someone you have no relationship with. Secondly, to regard the blood of the covenant as unclean is, again, only something you can do if you're a Christian, because the words tell you that to regard something as unclean means to act as if 
it is unclean. You think of it as unclean. The person has been cleaned, though now they act like it didn't actually happen for them. As the writer says, this is the blood by which they were sanctified, past tense. And then lastly, a believer is the only one who can insult the spirit of grace. God puts the spirit inside us as a guarantee of our future resurrection and inheritance. And only a believer has that kind of relationship. Therefore, an unbeliever may ignore the gospel, but they can't insult a spirit they don't know. All of these together tell us that we're talking about believers, certainly, which means it's very pertinent to all of us. We're not talking about the theory of some other person. We're talking about what could attach to us in our very walk as Christians. If a believer disobeys the truth that they've come to know in the new covenant, the writer says, remember, you have a Lord who has declared in his own word, I will repay and I will judge my people. And the judgment can be severe. Now, we don't know how all that judgment's going to go. Let's also be clear about what we don't know here. And, and I think it's interesting that the writer speaks in relatively abstract terms. You notice he never really spells out what this is going to be like. He alludes to something we don't want to be a part of without actually naming it. So we don't know what the judgment is going to be for those who forsake the Lord. But this much we can say, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is that phrase challenge you? And by that, I mean, does it challenge you to consider that a statement of that sort has applicability for believers? I know in my own walk as a Christian, there's been times when my thinking gravitated toward the God in heaven to be like the grandfather in the rocking chair, which is a nice notion. I understand the the appeal of it. But that's not what you find when you read the Bible. You don't ever really find him described that way. The closest you get is seeing Christ with children sitting on his lap when he was Walking the earth. But that doesn't negate, that truth doesn't negate the simultaneous truth that he is a demanding master. That what he's done for us demands our full and complete obedience and dedication to serving him. That, that's the point. So if it challenges you to consider that your judgment moment might include terror, well, Go to the Bible and find out for yourself what men who are godly and obedient have experienced when they have had moments in God's presence. For example, Moses. How did Moses react when he saw God at the burning bush? Just a vision of God, just the glory of God, not the fullness of him. How did Elijah or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John in Revelation? How did we see them respond in the presence of God? They all had essentially the same response. They had unreserved fear and trembling and this experience of vulnerability, a sense that sinful flesh standing in the presence of a holy God was not a good thing for them. And these are men who had nothing to fear from the standpoint of what they were doing. They were serving God. They were they were men who we might expect to receive a welcome treatment from God. And God didn't treat them badly, mind you. He was just being who he was, a holy and awesome God, who therefore will naturally bring to us a sense of terror. Here's the most sobering piece of it. In the moments they met with God, those weren't even their moments of judgment. Those were just moments along a path to getting to judgment. Now, I'm not trying to set you up for dread for the moment that you will meet Christ. That really comes down to where you live. There are Christians who should dread that moment. That's the whole point the writer's trying to make. There are some, yeah. 
Yeah, you set aside the law of Moses, you died physically. You set aside the new covenant by which you have been saved. And friends, it is going to be a terrifying thing when you fall into the hands of the living God. It's not going to result in the lake of fire. But there's a big spectrum between lake of fire and giggles and joy, right? There's there's a lot of things that could happen in that span that we're not giving any thought to. And if we're living in a life of rebellion because we just assume it's all going to work out in the end, the Bible stands here to tell us something that we need to hear. Imagine what judgment will be like for the one who has entered into the new covenant, known what is expected, and then intentionally lives in apostasy or severe disobedience. One day that believer is going to stand before that holy, awesome and terrifying creator God and answer for how that person served him or didn't. And the writer says it's going to be terrifying because we won't have excuse and we won't be anybody to hide behind. We're there alone for that purpose. And I have to believe that we know we did not do the right thing. We know we didn't heed the word of God. We knew the truth and we chose not to. We had the power with the spirit to make a change and we didn't avail ourselves of that power. We're not going to stand there in that transparent moment and say to ourselves, this is utterly unfair. Only then will we understand what we were putting at risk because of willful sinning. Now, again, our eternal life in heaven is secure, but that isn't the consideration that the writer has interested in right now. And that's not a consolation either. And nor can it become license to live in disobedience. Now, there is a healthy tension in the New Testament on this issue, one that I don't want to overlook. We have been saved by grace from the penalty of our sin. That sacrifice of Christ done once for all is sufficient to save us and to reconcile us. And we will live in glory with Christ forever as a result on account of our faith in his life and death. Nothing takes that away from us. But with our faith and salvation comes an expectation that we serve the master who bought us and that we don't turn back, that we don't insult the spirit of grace. We don't trample him underfoot, so to speak. And if we do, if we become lazy or seek false worship, then we should fear the Lord more so than we would otherwise fear the consequences. Now, like all warnings in this letter, this writer ends with an encouragement and we desperately need one right about now. And if, if you're thinking like I am right, because everything we heard, we don't want to forget, but it's not the last word. Look how he ends the chapter. He ends in a word of encouragement, something that has happened after each of the warnings we've heard so far. He always does this. Verse 32, he says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Well, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Verse 37, he says, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, you know, the writer is probably set in this encouraging word here at the end because he realizes his stern words would have shocked the conscience of his readers. And if so, that's intentional. He wants them to wake up, get back on the straight and narrow. But he also wants them to have some reason to think that there's still hope for them. And I think that's the message we want to leave with as we finish the text today as well. That, yes, there are those who have who have gone off willfully sinning and are in trouble and have reason to fear. But that's not the end of their life necessarily. 
there is a hope that they could come back. And this letter welcomes them back. And it begins with a memory. He says, remember the former days. Now, he's speaking here about the very early days in which these believers walked in their faith, having come to know the Lord, when everything was new and exciting and there was a world of possibilities out there. Before the enemy began to create confusion, before their flesh began to tempt them through fear or desire or distractions. They lived in those days, the writer says, in their faith, by the spirit, doing the deeds in keeping with their faith. Things like suffering persecutions, as he mentions here, uh, giving thanks to the Lord, even as they saw their possessions taken away from them by the local authorities as a consequence of their faith. And friends, you really can't overestimate the kinds of experiences that the Jewish Christians of the early church commonly suffered through at the hands often of other Jews. They were often imprisoned. They occasionally would lose their lives as martyrs. But even short of losing their lives, life was just miserable. Your trade, your ability to do business or to have an income was tied closely to the community you lived in. And if everyone shunned you, your business shut down. You had no income. Your family was starving. There was this tremendous pressure to step out of what you had, to step out of the new covenant and to fall in line with the Jewish culture around you. But look what the writer says. They went through all of those early experiences Because why? Because they knew that those persecutions were God-derived tests and they were passing those tests with flying colors as they suffered in those persecutions. As they endured those trials, they knew they were earning an even greater treasure in heaven. Whatever nonsense they were having confiscated out of their poor homes couldn't compare with the treasure that their obedience was going to result in. And they could rejoice in that. What makes that kind of rejoicing possible? Knowledge. Knowledge. Someone teaching you about an eternal reward. Someone teaching you about a judgment day. Someone teaching you that count it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials, knowing that these trials produce in you an endurance which leads to its perfect and right result. There's this purpose in it that you can understand. And therefore, your response matters. You see, if you... If you've made that point clear through good teaching and then reinforced it, then I can work through something like that with the right mindset and with a heart to contend with it. But if I haven't learned those things, if we're living in the flesh instead of in the spirit, well, then what do I think when I find myself persecuted? I think, how do I get out of this? We may endure persecutions as Christians, but are you prepared to endure them gladly? Are you prepared to endure them because they're tests from the Lord, which eventually count us worthy, make us worthy for an even greater reward? That's called living with eyes for eternity rather than focusing on the world. This church set their gaze initially on spiritual things, but because they lacked the growth and the maturity that was expected of them, what happened? Over time, that gaze just sort of fell. And next thing you know, they're just staring at the world around them. They're staring at their everyday life. And eventually, they start longing for the stability and the peace that comes with going along with the crowd. Of living as a Jew, which was acceptable in that culture, instead of as a Christian, which made them despised and rejected, just like Christ himself, I should add. Their apostasy, therefore, was not a matter of religious conviction. And that, I think, is maybe the most important point that we can make in understanding how something like this happens. Christians do not become apostate as a function of religious conviction. The Bible says it is rather a matter of convenience. They're seeking to avoid persecution. 
They're more interested in, in saving their skin or building their wealth or easing their guilt or addressing some ego issue or relationship issue. They're more interested in those things than in honoring the Lord who died for them. Verse 35, the writer says they throw away their confidence. You notice that? They didn't lose it. It wasn't taken from them. They throw it away. They trade it. And notice in verses 35 and 36, he reminds them they ought not throw away their confidence in the promises of Christ. Why? Because there's such a great reward at stake. Our endurance, he says, will be rewarded. Whatever the will of God is, whatever that may be for each of us, whether it includes a lot of persecution or just a little, what trades are we willing to make? Now, we don't know specifically what the Lord has in store for us in terms of treasure, but I assure you, nothing in this world can compete with it. Scripture says that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So you can be sure, whatever that reward is that awaits you, it is well worth whatever sacrifice the Lord asks of you here. Moreover, the writer reminds us, that the wait for that is not all that long either. You notice he finishes there saying that the Lord is coming in a very little while. Verse 37. The righteous, therefore, will live by faith without shrinking back. As we know, the reward is coming. The judge is at the door, ready to come any day. And we need to be ready. Lastly, to end this morning, the writer declares, and I think it's with an optimistic tone. The readers will not be among those who shrink back and suffer the penalty. Instead, they're going to be like those who, as the quote says, live by faith. He's saying, don't be a believer who lives like an unbeliever. Because in doing so, you risk destruction of your witness, erosion of your reward, and the judgment of a God who is holy and just. Instead, he says, be like the believer who lives like the believer. Because in doing so, you are living out the purpose of your witness in keeping with your faith, which he says has the power to preserve your soul. Well, in other words, our physical life, the way we live our physical life, should reflect your spiritual life. And if you are saved by faith to serve God into eternity, then your life should reflect that reality that I've been saved for a purpose. Obey and serve Christ now just as you will in the kingdom. And if you do so, you will be rewarded in ways beyond your imagination. If you don't, you stand to lose something far greater than you could ever gain here on earth. Preserving your soul in this context, therefore, means preserving the reward that God has held out for those who live according to their faith. It's a way of summing up all that he said in this chapter. The right way to end this lesson is the way the writer ends it. Let's not be like those who would make that mistake. Let's understand the difference. Let's make that our goal. You, you have all the power you need living inside you by way of the Spirit to please the Lord. The only question is, are you listening to it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us listen better. Help us listen to your Spirit. Father, he doesn't scream at us. He doesn't yell. He speaks in a consistent but soft tone in my experience. He asks us to quiet the other voices so that we can hear him. To set aside the, the false teachers or the temptations of our life. To drown out the, uh, or to put aside the things that drown out the voice of reason and truth that speaks to us through his word. Father, give us the, uh, the means to do that. Convict us for the need and show us the means. Father, for many of us who, who have lived a life that is dedicated to you and in our best efforts, Father, are following, 
from day to day, then let us take the encouragement to know that you are just and that you will not forget those years of service and that the reward that we will one day understand, uh, experience will be one that will reflect your pleasure. And we can rest entirely on that. And as we may face trials and tribulations in the future, as things may turn against us here in this life, as inevitably they will, help, Father, to, to encourage us by remember, giving us a mind to remember those things, to rest in those things. For nothing we can have taken from us in this life, Father, even our own lives for that matter, nothing is worth trading for what you have held in store for us. And then lastly, Father, for those among us who are struggling, for whom it feels like we have entered into a period of willful sin and we just can't break the cycle, Father, we know you can break it. You do so first by the conviction of your word. And if we found that word convicting this morning, Father, then we praise you for that first step. But the second step, Father, is, is also in your hands by the power of the Spirit in us. Give us the, the means to say no or to say yes or to say what's necessary so that we avoid the mistakes of the past. Help us run back to you with the same strength and the same effort that we ran away. And let us come to know your forgiveness once more. And let us all, Father, encourage one another as long as today is called today and in this body to support that same process in each of us. Let us not try to do it alone. I thank you, Lord, for the reminder and for the encouragement and for the power to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.